Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are going to break down a seven-hour marathon of interviews with 10 Democratic presidential candidates about climate on CNN last night. A team of Politico reporters watched the interviews and lived to tell the tale. We're going to have two of them on to debrief us. Plus, we've got a great story this week about how the frontman of the old-school rap group Two Live Crew, Luke Campbell, blasted Kamala Harris over her life as a prosecutor, even her marriage to a white man, and then how she ultimately won him over. And the author is going to come on and talk to us about this crazy story, but also what it tells us about Harris and her campaign as we really start to, to bear down on the Iowa caucuses now. As always, we're taping this on Thursday. Today, that's September 5th. So we're all up to date as of then. If any 80s and 90s rap stars come out for Kamala Harris on Friday, we're going to have to cover it in next week's episodes. All right. So, the climate marathon. Seven hours of interviews with Democratic presidential candidates. We've got energy reporter Kelsey Tamburino here to talk with us about it. Hi, Kelsey. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. And on the line, we've got uh, national political reporter David Siders. David, how you doing? Good. Nice to be here. Great to have you. All right. So, Kelsey, first up, seven hours. Long time. Yeah, it's uh, a long you, time. You and your team were, were, were tracking every bit of it. I mean, what, what, what did you guys see? Did you see much news made or was this kind of were people just kind of going through the motions of stump mm-hmm. speeches um i mean i think we saw quite a bit of news actually made uh the candidates talked about nuclear energy carbon tax um whether or not they would ban fracking and for the first time we really saw them separate themselves between each other for the last few months we've seen them kind of pitch the same things they're going to re-enter the paris climate agreement they want to have some sort of timeline to reach net zero carbon emissions. And also um, there's been most of them support the Green New Deal in some way. Um, So those have been the lines that they've kind of talked about for the last few months. This is the first time we really saw them separate themselves and dive a little bit more into the issues um, that are in their plans, all of which that were on the stage last night, all of the candidates on stage last night have introduced some sort of climate plan. Um, They all kind of track the same large portions, but there were differences in like these issues like nuclear energy and things like that. Mm-hmm. What were the big moments on, on nuclear energy? I mean, Elizabeth Warren, nuclear power obviously is controversial for a whole host of other reasons. No no carbon emissions, but it's you know potentially dangerous in, in other ways. Right. Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren last night and Bernie Sanders both said that they would phase out nuclear. Mm. Um, and this is something that a lot of activists have been questioning the candidates on how they're going to handle the issue of nuclear energy. Um, Cory Booker, who was in the last portion of the debate, so he or the forum, sorry, he was on the, at the 11 p.m. spot. He argued kind of the opposite at this point that you can't achieve net zero carbon emissions without nuclear energy. Um, and he belabored this point that uh, you need more research and innovation in this subject to uh, get to that goal. Mm-hmm. So he, I think he said something along the lines of like, 
if you aren't, you're not looking at the facts if you think that you don't need nuclear. Um, so that was a point of contention. We also had some discussion about carbon taxes, um, and Beto O'Rourke said that he would be in favor of a cap-and-trade system, which is something he hadn't said directly yet. Um, so there's news on that front. I think the biggest moment came for Joe Biden. He was pressed about this fundraiser that he was supposed to attend the day after the town hall, which is on Thursday, which would be co-hosted by a co-founder of an LNG company, uh, a lot of environmental... That's liquid natural gas, right? Right, yes. Okay. So environmental groups who track this issue of fossil fuel money in campaigns curious about what was going on there um he was asked about it by an audience member and denied it initially and said that you know this person wasn't involved in lng and then kind of walked it back said he would look into it he also has said that his staff later like he said later that um he was told that this this guy had no responsibility related to the company was not on the board and was not involved in its operations mm. But the groups that track this issue kind of said maybe he's not technically violating this pledge that you took to not take fossil fuel contributions, but it's definitely not in line with the spirit of the pledge. Got it. And, and that, that we was, could see that come back later in the yeah, campaign, essentially. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of along those lines, uh, David, you you and uh, Zach Coleman, also of the, the energy team uh, here at Politico, uh, wrote a story wrapping up the whole event uh, yesterday and kind of looking at, at how... Uh, obviously, it was all focused on one policy issue, but it, but it seemed like, uh, from from reading the piece, it it seemed like what you guys took away from it is that, you know, more evidence of like moving into this new phase of the campaign where we're starting to see like a lot of contrast drawn, people looking for uh, examples uh, in other people's records and other people's policy plans to kind of weaponize uh, bits and pieces, and th- this could be a big part of that climate going forward as we get closer to the Iowa caucuses. I think that's true, it, and this is a big month for. Or could be a big month for climate change. Not only that forum, but there's one on MSNBC later on this month. Uh, the UN has a meeting around which I would imagine uh, candidates will make some noise. And then, you know, whatever natural disasters uh, happen in September, uh, this this is shaping up to be a, a pretty big month for climate. Uh, I, I think also just in the broader, not just for this primary, but for presidential elections in general, The news of yesterday, there was a lot of news made, as Kelsey said, but the fact that we had seven hours on TV of any discussion about climate uh, is, I think, in itself worth worth remarking on, because for so many years, it really has just been a backwater in presidential politics. I was talking to um, Jerry Brown yesterday in California, who, and this was while the forum was going on, he'd pulled up Al Gore's acceptance speech from the nomination in 2000. And this is Al Gore we're talking about. And only one sentence in that speech about global warming, and it, it wasn't much to it. So really, hmm. we, we have come a long way in presidential politics. Uh, now, that being said, I, I do think it's interesting that you, know, you can have polling that says that climate change is a really important issue to Democratic voters, and we have that now, and so the candidates are paying attention. But there is some difference between whether an issue is important to you as a voter and whether that's a an issue that that candidates are able to differentiate you know, themselves from each other on. And the, the polling so far suggests maybe that's not happening. If you, Morning Consult asked what they call people who care about climate or, or listed as a, a top voting concern, the polling tracks almost identically with the polling of the general audience. So that's, that suggests to me that, that where a candidate stands on a climate policy 
is not necessarily moving the needle um, so far in the election. So we'll see. I mean, they're trying to weaponize it and we'll see if they can. Yeah, that's a really good point, David. I mean, Kelsey, we saw that this forum came up uh, notable by his absence was Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who uh, based his entire presidential campaign on climate change, fighting climate change, dropped out of the race recently and didn't didn't make it to kind of the what would have been the signature event. Yeah, but he he came up quite a bit. Um, the candidates clearly gave him a, a nod to his success in, in bringing this conversation up. Um, a lot of the activists that have been pushing for a climate debate would say that this was a good step, I'm sure, but they would like to see more on these points that the candidates do differ on. And um, we're going to see again later this month. There's an MSNBC forum on climate change, but we'll well, it remains to be seen what comes up out of that. Yeah, it'll be kind of interesting to see what's different mm-hmm. in that versus uh, versus this one, right? I mean, we, we haven't seen too many single-issue forums yet. There's going to be some stuff on gun control also put on by by a, a few of the major groups in, in democratic politics and some other stuff like that. But I, I am also kind of curious to see what what changes and what doesn't. Uh, is it just going to be – is it going to be kind of the, the – similar thing on a different channel or are we really right. going to see evolution? David, what what struck you most as you were as you were watching last night besides I you the the point about just like, like how far things have have come in the democratic primary and democratic politics, presidential politics in 20 years. That's a, a really good one. What did did anything in particular from any of the candidates last night strike you in in a way that you know you think is going to have lasting impact on on the campaign? Well, outside of the the Biden uh fundraising issue, which seems to come up all the time. He's always on the defensive. And politically, um, I think Kelsey mentioned that that was a big moment. And I think it it was. Uh, I I guess what struck me is that it it was fascinating to see us actually having a conversation about things like uh, hydraulic fracturing and cap and trade. When I think for so long it was okay for a Democrat to, or at least climate change served as some kind of common denominator where you know, you have this president in the White House who denies climate science, he calls it a Chinese hoax. And so as a Democrat, it was, it seemed like a common position to be able to say, we're going to reenter the Paris Climate Accords. Um, it will take, you know, a few other steps to address warming, whatever it is. Uh, but here are some really detailed, nuanced conversations about you know, things like nuclear that I, I just, I guess I wouldn't have expected to see if you'd asked me two years ago, if I would have expected to see that uh, be a subject for debate for seven hours on CNN. There's no way I would have uh, thought that that would have happened. And the candidates are going to have to adjust to that. You saw, I think it was uh, Senator Harris who was dodging on on nuclear, uh, went directly to waste in Yucca Mountain, which is an easy answer for a Democratic candidate, but didn't address the substance there. And, and I th- and she's not alone. I mean, there's hey, Julian Castro was getting. You know, criticized for his past support for fracking when he was the, the mayor of San Antonio. This stuff's going to keep coming up and, and probably will again on the MSNBC forum. So that stood out to me as kind of a fascinating departure from where we have been in the past. That's actually a really good point. You know, that, that reminds me of uh, some stuff that happened in the 2008 primary a little bit, just about, you know, I don't think there were too many Americans out there who thought about the term individual mandate as it related to healthcare and like what that meant and how important that was to you know, a, a potential reworking of the American healthcare system at this point. But you've seen, we've seen uh, stuff with immigration come up. Julian Castro certainly weaponized it against Beto O'Rourke uh, in, in one of the debates to great effect. Some very... Um, 
fine-grained specifics about some of the law there. We've seen some very specific stuff about climate come up. I'm sure there's going to be some some big specifics about healthcare that rear their heads uh, in in these debates. And it's, just, it's going to be interesting to see how those affect not only the fall campaign, but if one of these people does end up getting elected president, how it affects their priorities uh, in in the opening of their administration. I think that's a great comparison to healthcare. You hear climate activists uh, talking about climate change as having the potential to evolve in the same way that healthcare did. And ideologically, it has some of the same issues for Democrats. Uh, the way you, you know, we saw Democrats or see Democrats fight over, say, Medicare for all. Uh, the Green New Deal stands in on, on the climate side. And congressional Democrats have definitely been grappling with that. And I think, I think Americans are gaining, what would you say, maybe like touchstone words to understand climate change. And the Green New Deal, for all of its uh, lack of specificity, has become something that has allowed, you know, I think, the electorate to touch the issue in a, in the same way that individual mandate, which you, you know, might not have appeared that way in two thousand eight, became something that that I think most Americans understand now. That's a great point, Kelsey. Last question: Climate activists have been pushing for a um, a, a debate solely focused on on the issue for some time. Now, th- this wasn't a debate; it was a forum, right? No one was on stage with anyone else, and although there was quite a bit of back and forth, just you know time elapsed uh, between some of the candidates. But w- was this really what climate activists were looking for? Or or is it are we still going to see kind of uh, s- some some pushing for, for something else? Which yeah, I mean, the DNC has said we're not going to get right. Yeah. I mean, I think they would say that the fact that you could fill seven hours with climate discussion is the reason why there needs to be a debate. Um, and they want to see candidates on the same stage actually going back and forth on these issues. But I do think they would say that this was a step in the right direction. Um, but they're still looking for more discussion on this. So I think you'll still see some sort of push on getting a debate, although that's unlikely. Got it. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And Dave, thanks for hopping on to talk to us as well. Thank you. All right. Next up, we're going to talk to uh, our national political reporter, Chris Cadalago, who's here to talk about his recent story on two live crew frontman Luke Campbell and his relationship with Kamala Harris and, and what this tells us about Kamala Harris's campaign. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hey, what's up? Chris, by, by way of introduction to this this topic, what is Two Live Crew? Who's Luther Campbell? And, and why are people paying attention to him? So Two Live Crew, uh, if they're not, should be credited with uh, inventing or helping invent twerking before it had an actual name. We've got white collar people trying to crap our stars saying we're too nasty and we're too live. Corrupted politicians playing games, bringing us down to boost their fame. They must be joking, thinking we were poor, but their life flies moving the wall. We stand tall from beginning to end with help from fans and friends. Campbell uh, was... Uh, very politically active, even in the days of Two Live Crew. You remember the parental advisory sticker and the fight with Tipper Gore um, in uh, in Washington uh, in the courts. Um, and so he he kind of uh, in that group rose to be sort of uh, a frontman, not only musically but politically. In in recent years, he's uh, he's based in Miami. He writes a column for Miami New Times, the Alt Weekly. There, he has a podcast. Um, he talks all about sports a lot. He talks about politics quite a bit. He talks about culture. And he has quite a following, uh, particularly among people around his age, 50s and 60s, middle-aged African-American men who uh, were fans of his music. You don't see him appear on the cable news shows as much, but 
uh, his opinions carry a lot of weight with people who do. And so you hear his column brought up uh, by folks, uh, especially as it relates to the 2020 election and uh, taking on Donald Trump. Got it. And I mean, especially a column he wrote earlier this year as Kamala Harris was preparing to launch her presidential campaign, right? She she came in for some very, very serious criticism for him, both on the policy front and then in extremely personal terms uh, as well, just as, as her campaign was getting off the ground. What what was going on here? What was what was his beef with, with Harris? So we talked to him and he said that he had done a bunch of research. He went in and looked at, um, you know, aspects of her record and he looked at aspects of her personal life and it just really turned him off. He, he didn't have any conversations with anyone on the campaign. He wasn't talking to people in politics. He was just talking to people he knows. And it, and and he was really sort of taken aback by the fact that um, she has uh, what he thought was a really sort of mixed and even bad record. He talked about her uh, going after uh, young black men as a prosecutor. And um, he talked about the fact that she was in that job. Um, she chose to do that, which he thought was just sort of a stain on her character. Um, even talked about the fact that she chose to marry a, a white man and um, her uh, relationship with Willie Brown back in the 90s. Um, a couple so, of very incendiary. Yes, kind of yes. Things, to, um, to things that people don't normally write in a political column. Um, very personal. And where is he writing this? Sorry. This is Miami New Times. He has a regular column there. So um, yeah, I saw it at the time. There was a lot of pushback. We noted in the story that Simone Sanders, who was kind of a free agent at the time, not working for any of the campaigns, um, said, why are we even paying attention to what Uncle Luke is saying? We, we should just ignore him. Um, but but others writing in other publications kind of echoed some of these things, the, 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 um, the policy aspect of it, not the personal stuff. Um, so some of it was sort of taking flight with, uh, with people. It was getting a lot of attention online. Um, uh, folks in, uh, in journalism were bringing this up on MSNBC shows and, and uh, talk shows and, and citing his column. So it got a lot more pickup beyond just his normal readership. And um, I think folks around Kamala Harris saw this and, and they were like, you know, this kind of thing. We can't allow this thing to sort of metastasize and, and just continue to, uh, to keep going. Yeah. So then something interesting happens, right? Uh, people around Harris and then ultimately Harris herself reach out to Campbell. Yeah, I think so. Campbell, uh, folks around Harris knew that uh, Luther Campbell was very, very active in 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 being a commentator in the Florida uh, governor's race in 2018 with Andrew Gillum. He had he had written critically about him. He talked critically about him, and um, they saw the effect that it could have. And so I think they started to reach out to him on Harris's behalf. And so then what happened? So you had a, a number of people. Bakari Sellers being one who reached out really early. Um, I went back and looked at. Uh, Luke Campbell's podcast and saw that there was this episode with Bakari. So this thing was kind of playing out in real time in these various podcasts. Like the so courting people, of the... The courting, um, he's obviously a, a surrogate for her. There were other um, uh, journalists kind of on their own behalf who brought it up with him and were just like, hey, this isn't fair. If you want to talk about a record, uh, you could do that, but but don't talk about her personal life. So, so some people took it upon themselves to say... Uh, this shouldn't be happening. He, um, meantime, at home, he, he was telling me that uh, his wife, his mother-in-law, his sister-in-law were all in the same uh, sorority as Kamala Harris, obviously big Kamala Harris supporter. So he was kind of getting heat for the, his, his hot take at home. So he was kind of getting it from all sides. 
And meantime, these debates were playing out. We saw two debates that she was part of. He was watching the field play out. He was watching the other candidates. And, and so some of it was himself just kind of coming around to her. And and ultimately, this uh, this all kind of comes together in a, in a conversation. Yeah. So uh, the Harris campaign got a, a hold of his phone number. They had seen that he'd been making comments and podcasts and, and, and on Twitter that he was coming around to her. I, I, I was told by some folks uh, with her that they probably would not have reached out early on. He just did not seem like he could be convinced. It just did not seem worth it, especially with the stuff he was saying. But as they saw him kind of softening, uh, they saw an opportunity to put her on the phone. This is kind of part of her uh, – uh, what they say is her appeal that that you can you can really dislike her, but she's harder, much harder to dislike uh, in person and and especially when she talks to you. Um, and they see that as you know, sort of a potential um, bright spot that you know maybe she hasn't reached enough people out there mm-hmm. yet. Enough people haven't seen her, um, and they they think she has upside. Um, and this is sort of one example of that with uh, Uncle Luke. Yeah, I mean, t- tell me a little bit more. Part of the reason the story is so interesting is because it, and and you brought a lot of this into your reporting. It really kind of illustrates a, a bunch of different things about about Harris's campaign. I mean, number one, like the willingness to to kind of still attempt to court people who who are you know definitely not on her side at least at, at one point. But does this episode also say something broader about about Harris's outreach and attempts to build support in the black community? Obviously. Former Vice President Joe Biden uh, has, still has a commanding lead in the polls among black voters uh, at this point, and his campaign is talking about how important that's going to be in in states like South Carolina through Super Tuesday, so on and so forth. Yeah, a lot of her uh, overt outreach and and the things she talks about um, could be seen as more targeted to, toward black women. I mean, she talks about her own background. Um, and so early on, I think people were concerned when they talked about this column. They they went on TV shows. They said specifically that she has a problem with middle-aged African-American men. And so that 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 was kind of the uh, what he represented with this column was was the uh, uh, criticism of her um, from a male standpoint. And I think that the campaign has done a lot of these phone calls with people. Um, sometimes people will reach out and say, "Hey, I have a problem with this or that aspect of your record," and they'll they'll put. Uh, her sister and campaign chair on the phone with them to kind of explain things. Part of this is not um, surprising because when you have a pretty complex record, things can be explained in multiple different ways. And so I think people want to kind of hear that for themselves. Um, in the polling, as you mentioned, shows that Joe Biden is, I mean, I think he's in the 50s um, with uh, with black voters overall and even higher among uh, black men. So, so this, it does sort of speak to a big part of the constituency uh, that she really needs as her base. And this is just sort of one example um, that her campaign was able to bring someone around on. And I think it, it probably gives them some uh, sense of, uh, of hope that she can do it uh, on a much, much wider scale. But, you know, I guess the analysis I would add to it is people need to see a lot more of her. I still kind of have this feeling that, um, you know, we're seeing others, we're hearing from others and, 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 um, uh, you know, now in the post-Labor Day campaign sort of sprint, I, I think that's what she'll need to do is just get in front of more people and, and, and see if, uh, if she can convert them or bring them along. What struck you most uh, from your interview with Campbell? I think the fact that he had such uh, sort of piercing views on her 
but the depth of the understanding, uh, which he admitted, really wasn't there. So he was able to form such a uh, harsh critique of her without, you know, with having researched uh, a few things, but not not having spent a ton of time looking into her. And so I think, um, you know, when you when you look at Twitter, the issue for her would be she's not on the far left. She's not sort of winning uh, these folks who are who are very vocal on social media. Um, and she's not Joe Biden, who's an established politician for 40 years. And so um, it can be kind of easy to miss who her constituency is. And I think uh, having sort of validators like uh, Lucas is probably a good thing for her campaign. He uh, it follows this stuff religiously. Like, it, I mean, it, it, it was kind of like talking to another uh, political reporter, hmm. the 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 level that he's following the campaign itself, you know, the aspects of these individual debates that have happened to uh, picking up on, you know, candidates as stump speeches. And I think it was sort of a process of elimination for him. He was uh, very critical of the other candidates, very critical of Biden and the, and the crime bill and uh, talked about how Elizabeth Warren and her uh, promise of reparations was never going to happen. And black people know that's never going to happen is how he put it. And he thought Cory Booker was just not resonating at the time. Um, and so it, it was an interesting perspective. I think um, the one thing we should remember uh, about folks like him is, is sometimes, and this is what a lot of people said in the reporting, sometimes they're, they're too easily dismissed by the um, you know, Morning Joe set in Washington. And, and, but uh, he has a wide audience, people that follow the podcast, people that follow the column, people that follow him on social media. Yeah. Um, and so it's something to keep in mind that there are these pockets that are much harder to reach of, uh, of voters that he speaks to. And so it's obviously helpful for a campaign. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, uh, folks, I, I really suggest that you read the the full story that Chris wrote. The, it's on Politico.com. The headline is, A rap legend ripped Kamala's marriage to a white man, then she won him over. And it's got all sorts. Of, I mean, the the interview with Campbell, interviews with uh, with some other folks involved in in this saga, and kind of culminating in the the conversation that Campbell and Harris uh, had that that officially won won him over. Chris, thanks for talking us through it. Yeah, it was fun. Fascinating story. Cool. You have the right to listen to whoever you want to, and even the two live crew, two live crew. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Jenny Ahmed. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>